I'm going down there. Well, to fight, of course, but I think if I go there, I'll learn something, who I am and what I'm capable of. So there's no way I can die here. I'm Chris Bybee. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Genreless, we talk about Mobile Suit Gundam, the 08th MS team. So, watching this brought me back to the mid-90s. I remember the mid-90s vividly from all the anime I used to watch then. And, mm-hmm. and I loved I loved it to start with. Mm-hmm. What about you? I, honestly, uh, I was... I don't know. I mean, like, I, the, I, the first few episodes, yeah, I was, like, into it. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is, this is the stuff that I loved about, kind of, the mid-90s anime. Um... For me, I was a little more muted because I have since actually watched some of the original Gundam, which this is kind of set timeline-wise in the events of. So my brain kept going, oh, that, that's a original Gundam reference. That's a Gundam reference. That's a Gundam reference. So like I, I pulled out of it a little bit more. But I mean, like it was, it was, it was a fun dive in, I thought, initially at first. And I got weird. Is I don't don't I don't think I have your deep Gundam lore knowledge. I have like pockets of it, so I didn't really get a lot of that. Because I think the first Gundam I started with was Gundam Wing, and that sort of bounced back to some of the originals, and then around mm-hmm. all around. Um, which I landed on Raw Zephan, which is also like a different story if we ever get to Raw Zephan. Oh wow, yeah. Uh, but it had everything that I really really liked to start with. It felt like gritty. The Gundams were like a force to be reckoned with, and it had mm-hmm. some amazing fights in it. Yeah. But we'll get to the last episode that I wanted us to watch purposely so that it would go and poop on everything they built up. <laughs> you know that show you like? Well, then here you go. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> that that may have been my, my point, but I... <laughs> I will not go into that. I guess we should give a recap of the show unless there's anything else you want to say before we get started. No, no, let's, let's, just, let's just dive in. All right. In the year 0079 of the Universal Century, the Earth Federation initiates Operation Odessa, a full-scale assault to retake a major city from the Principality of Xeon. It's a success, and the remaining Xeon forces are scattered across the globe. The Earth Federation gains the upper hand in the one-year war and deploys its ground troops around the planet to hunt down the stragglers. And the first episode, the War for Two, sort of kicks off as we're introduced to Ensign Shiro Amada. And he's sort of being transferred to the Southeast Asia to take command of the 08th MS, which is going to be our primary team. Mm. And in route, they see that one of the Federation... Soldiers is being attacked in space, and so Shiro goes out to space into a, in a ball mecha, which is supposedly one of the worst you can possibly do to sort of save that person. Mm-hmm. And during the encounter, Shiro and the enemy pilot get stranded in an abandoned ship while everyone is trying to rescue them. And they have a Romeo and Juliet moment with Annalise, who is mm-hmm. a amazing mech pilot for the enemy, and Shiro, who is going to be our primary character for the Federation. At mm-hmm. the end of the episode, they are both saved through their own ingenuity, and they give each other long, loving glances as they go their separate ways. I, we didn't talk about this relationship much when we covered Robotech, the first part, but I, I got strong, like Max Sterling vibes from this when I, first, when I watched it. Did you feel yeah. the same way? It was like someone saw Robotech, and they went, you know what? Rick Hunter's okay, but I want my show to be about Max and Miriam. Mm-hmm. And that entire antagonistic yet love relationship for the entire series. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of that. The idea of it is great. Right. The execution. I too was a young person with many, <laughs> many feelings and emotions. When I saw another hot young person, I too would feel great, strong things. But I don't know if those great, strong things for only being together for like an hour. Um, would be enough to like make me break my command structure, go rogue, all for we'll generously call it love. 
So uh, one of the things I like about the Mobile Suit franchise um, is that it it does this at times various wells, but basically it, it looks at the idea of child soldiers from different perspectives. Um, and so like one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these characters are like 17 to 20 in range. They're, they're very, very young. So two teenagers doing something really stupid in the middle of a conflict seems absolutely on point. I was a teenager <laughs> once I did stupid stuff because I thought someone was hot. So, I mean, I, I actually bought this to a degree, but I, I do, I do feel you in the sense that it felt really, it was like a lot crammed into 22 minutes, you know, it, it was and, like, I felt like if this had been a two-parter. It might have stretched it out better. I, th- I feel like that would have built a bit more, but it was basically half the episode was just setting up the status quo. And then you had that rhyme really like 11 minutes to try to sell this relationship. And given that they were in a uh, tent situation, which usually sort of bonds people together relatively quickly, mm. that level of it is hard to like for me personally to get on board with. Having I've been deployed with teenagers before overseas in combat zones, mm-hmm. and some of them will do questionable activities, mm-hmm. and the other ones will fall in line, kind of like with what was I was thinking. But the problem is that intensity is great, but there's a window of time where that would still function mm-hmm. so i guess i'm applying way too much logic to this um and it's the dis- disparity of them being apart for so long but that one moment holding them together throughout the entire course of the series like that i mean I, i'm I, conflicted I, by no i mean I, I i i'm with you i like the idea of uh the earth federation and zeon two people two pilots to each side trying to to bridge that gap and then continually being frustrated. It's, it's a good premise for a series. Um, but, I, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's on the one hand, I feel like the, the relationship wasn't really sold. On the other hand, I think to your point, if this is a military structure that does have child soldiers in it, you would think they would be prepared for situations like this happening. <laughs> And one of the things that the military likes to do, one of the reasons it tries to acquire people so young, is it lets them equivalently program people. Right. And if, if like, we grab you right out of school or, like, right off, right from home or the farm or wherever you are, when you're still super impressionable, whatever we tell you and force feed you for the next, like, two to four years is what you're probably going to believe for a long time. And it takes a lot of effort and external forces to break away from. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the parts I really like about the show is we watch Shiro sort of advance throughout the show. My my <laughs> issue with the relationship aside, seeing that character growth and development and the choices that character makes are fun to watch. Right. Um, and I mean, I also think like there's there's some interesting human moments that you start to see in this episode. There's more as we go along, I'll point them out. But in this one, um, just things like when, when uh, Anna gets picked up by her colleague. And her colleague, Mister, you know, genuinely, should I just shoot him now? Should I shoot him and pilot down? And she's like, no, 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 it, it's fine. Just, just let him go. Um, that that struck me as an interesting moment because, like, it wasn't the mush ta- twirling. Oh, they're evil, so I'm going to kill this person while they're vulnerable. It, it's the uh, is it worth our time to to do this? And and that's that's an interesting thread that goes throughout the show. I found is the when is the war on and when is the war off? Like there are times where it's the, sometimes you're the enemy and I have to do certain things. Sometimes you're another human being and I recognize that. And I think that's an interesting play to con to, to contrast with these giant robots. Right. So it's like, it, they're, they're very kind of impersonal war machines, but the people piling them being very, very human, making sometimes bad decisions is, is an interesting conceit. True, it's almost like that, oh, of course my, my brain had a hiccup now, but it's uh, that fight, I think it was in World War One or World War Two, where the soldiers never once stopped fighting, stopped fighting because it was Christmas. Like, oh, the Christmas just, started, um, just, yeah, that was World War One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and nothing. Like, that is interesting to see that human moment of war's on, war's on, war's off, mm-hmm. war's back on. Right. And so it was nice. While it was a bit forced, um, I still stand by that. But 
I think it was important to wedge that moment in to help sell the show. It's like, this is not going to be a black and white fight. And it also sort of reinforces the romance between the two because then you have maybe it's it's her feels for him personally and not just that principle of it. Mm-hmm. The, I guess, to, to get back a little bit to Shiro since he's our primary character, it's also a good, the episode's a great showing of him as a person. It shows him to be someone like fearless, brash, but also tactical in thinking. Mm-hmm. And taking like the ball out to fight a a fully powered other mobile suit when everyone else is saying that's impossible to do is really fun to watch and seeing him win for like a second and then it all goes sideways to show that no matter how how gutsy he is, there's still a level of reality that sort of overplays all overshadows all that. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, this is unrelated to anything, but uh I have a weird soft spot for the Zaku, even though it is probably the most garbage of the mobile suits. But every time I see a Zaku, it's like, oh, it's a Zaku. I love those little Cyclopses. We see a lot more Zaku throughout this. If you don't have anything else about episode one, I'm going to move on. My Zaku love is punched now. (laughs) Uh, We move on to episode four, the demon overhead. So for this, Every team that Sanders, he was also aboard the ship in the first episode. I didn't really touch on him. Mm-hmm. Is an older sergeant who is also placed under Shiro, but he seems like to move from team from team to team. And they also infer that he has a lot of bad things that have happened around him. Mm-hmm. So uh, every team that Sanders has ever belonged to has been wiped out on its third mission, and now it's time for the zero eighth MS's team's third mission. Mm-hmm. The worried Sanders asked Ciro to transfer him. In the middle of an operation, he wants to be transferred. <laughs> right. But then the uh, Xeon's new mobile armor, I think it's c- pronounced uh, Apris. Mm-hmm. I leave that questioning for you to correct person with more knowledge. I think it's Absaris. Maybe Absaris. We'll go with your different. We'll go with okay. your pronunciation. Absaris appears. And it is a impressive piece of machinery. Mm-hmm. I really like this episode. I, I like the fact that it shows Sanders, who is trying to believe that his luck can change, deciding that at the end of the day that he has had so many of the people killed, he doesn't want this to happen to his new team. Mm-hmm. And it's also team building because you have these this other unit taunting him, and he gets to a fist fight, and you have Shira who shows up, who doesn't try to break up the fight, but instead jumps in to help a soldier that's, that's under him. Yeah, and it was it was a nice show of how much superstition can take uh, hold in these stressful environments like this, uh, because it's just a statistical anomaly that this thing has happened to Sanders. But now it's not only do other people put that weight on him, but he's put that weight on himself, and he genuinely thinks that if I transfer to another unit and just keep bouncing units and do two missions with them, they'll be safe. And it's like there's no logic behind that but that feels very real everyone has kind of built this up except for Shiro. Shiro's like no that's that's you'll be fine and <laughs> it's it's a nice moment of at least it's Shiro defending not only his unit but sanders specifically uh it, it's it's the you need to stop doing this you need to stop saying this and Shiro has lots of logical military reasons behind that but it, it's it's also very human it's like you're tormenting this person for something that he didn't do and it's but, but, but even your allies can be very cruel in those kind of stressful environments so it, it was again this is one of those like very few moments like all the characters felt very real in this episode because it's like i could see all the logics of this because you want someone to blame you want someone to blame when things go bad even if it's just by capricious chance and so it's like i could see the reasoning for it even though this is still cruel and Shiro just being like, I just screw it. I'm just going to start punching people. It's like, I, I can see the frustration. Like, I just, there's nothing else going to get through to you. I'm just going to start punching people until you all settle down. It, 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 it's, it's very cowboy, but it feels very real still. And the moment when the commander comes and they all say it was just a training exercise, yep. that felt incredibly real to me having been in that situation before. Oh, really? <laughs> see, nope, nope, everything's fine. 
the commander having stopped just by showing up usually puts an end to the fight. But if you're going to tell that person, then everyone there is going to usually either get some sort of punishment, be it KP duty, be it sent to the brig for a while, any number of things that is not worth it mm-hmm. compared to walking away from however that incident ended. Mm-hmm. And because you know the commander knows that it wasn't a drill, but if no one says anything, a good commander will go, all right, that's it, let's roll. I, I assume that's because the commander is recognizing that this team has bonded, even if it is against him. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what, the, what the, the, perhaps the logic is if they've ever seen, I know and you know, but we're still not doing anything about it. It was an interesting dynamic. Because in, in a war zone, it's a very stressful situation, and there's it sounds really bad, but there is a, a need to blow off stress. And unfortunately, some people don't know how to do that in a productive or healthy way. Okay. And to be punished by the commander of that incident wouldn't have let the stress be blown off. It would have transferred it and then magnified it later. Okay. So it's a, a greater good sort of approach to it. You know, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, but I mean, the other thing that was nice about this episode is that uh, Sanders you know, proved himself. I mean, through, through the, you know, getting through the, the third mission, obviously the unlucky third mission, but during the time that he was kind of piloting, you could see him struggle with trying to overcome that anxiety. It, 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 it you'd see his brain trying to work against him. And so he wasn't, it wasn't like a, a slight switch, right? It wasn't like going, boom, I'm just going to believe in this, make it happen. It, it was, it was a struggle until it was over. And then the, the the look of relief. There's a lot of great. I hate to face face acting, but really, I mean, there's a lot of the animators did a really good job of, of body language and, and and facial expression to really sell that inner turmoil in a way that didn't require the voice actor to necessarily convey it. And so, what did you think of the new secret weapon? With your your vast knowledge of Mecha and Gundam, how did you like it? Which one was that one again? The big flying ship with the ultimate heat cannon. Heat cannon, yes. Um, it was indeed a weapon that exists. Um, I mean, well, again, one thing that's interesting about, I, I'm not like a super deep knowledgeable about uh, Gundam, but I, I, I've watched some of the original and this and a couple other heroes. Um, and one thing about the 0079 era specifically is just interesting is that they do try to put reasonably, it's not hard sci-fi, but hardish sci-fi. Uh, so it's like that you have these, these explanations for things to try to justify the things that happen, but then also separately the show recognizes that it has to sell toys. And so sometimes you have like, we have a new weapon because this is the point where we're actually obligated to try out a new suit or weapon or thing. So I have just kind of come to recognize, okay, this is the obligatory toy part. <laughs> this thing happens. Now we can move on. Sorry. Should we talk about Manowski? <laughs> I, well, I was wondering if we should talk about Manowski particles because I think that comes up in this episode, doesn't it? I it's think you're right. This yeah. Did you know what they were? No. Okay. I did not. Because I, I had to look it up. Um, because it's one of those things that it just gets thrown around in Gundam and it's never really adequately explained. Um, and the reason why is because it's a McGovern. Uh, but essentially there is a particle that was discovered at some point in the past where um, it is hard to aim through. Uh, uh, it's hard to get a lock on people who are inside a cloud of Nazca particles and it is hard to uh, uh, put full thrust through them, which is a justification for why sometimes giant robots have to punch each other. <laughs> it's the, we can't shoot through this and we can't just speed through this. So we got to punch each other or use laser swords or whatever. So that, that's the reason why Manonsky particles exist. And then over time, it seems like they use it for some form. Of, it, it's also implied to be kind of like a chaff that, that suits can deploy Manonsky particles to kind of hide behind them. Um, and, and so to reduce so, like, if I'm infiltrating an area, I will sometimes deploy Bronowski particles to make sure people can't shoot me down. But also, of course, by deploying them, people will really recognize them and know that something is there because these particles have been deployed. 
but the shit, this show gives zero explanation for that. It just throws it out there. And I'm like, Oh, I, we should probably talk about that because people who are not familiar with it. Probably have no clue what the hell they're talking about. I'm sure all of our listeners do. And they were going to tweet at us about exactly what it was, but now you stop that tweet or they'll tell me how I'm wrong, which is entirely possible. <laughs> Uh, so since we're jump, also jumping episodes, probably one of the things that we're not hit, highlighting quite as much, and one of the things that I really liked about the show is it constantly that you reference it constantly shows uh, both sides, sort of like goes back and forth and showing is almost as much screen time for the Zeons as it does for the Federation. So mm-hmm. you get like a sense of what's going on there for like who the primary power players are. It also lets you resonate a little bit more with Anna. And mm-hmm. what she is trying to accomplish there compared to the mustache twirling villain that is that is the face of their organization. Right. Yeah. You see kind of the while we're while on the uh, um, Federation side, we're seeing kind of the dynamics and politics of the military unit. On the other side, we're seeing kind of the slightly higher level officer politics that are happening in, in on that side of the conflict, which is an interesting contrast. Any other comments about the demon overhead? No, I think that pretty much covers it. So we moved to episode eight, Duty and Ideas. Shira has returned safely from the mountains, but is now suspected of being a spy and is confined to his quarters until a verdict is decided. Then Kiki's village comes under Xeon attack, and Shira must violate his orders and goes to the rescue with the team. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like here's where the wheels start coming off a little bit on the show. Um, because like, I, I, I kind of dig the idea of, okay, you've been talking with the enemy, so we're going to, um, you know, we're going to have a basically tribunal to see if, if you're actually a spy or not. I, I could see that logic. Uh, and then he goes off and violates his orders to go rescue people. I, I could see that logic, but really at that point in time, I feel like Discharge is really the only way out of this conversation because you don't bring someone to sex for a spy who then violates orders and then go, Nope, you're fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, we know that's not completely accurate. If we think back in this season, who could potentially have been a spy that was allowed to fully run around a military base and pilot in missions and became the secret protagonist of the show while Dana and the rest of the Southern Cross crew watched helplessly from the shadows. <laughs> hmm. Nah, I must must be imagining all that. Uh, okay. You have successfully refuted me. I, I stand corrected. It can't be an episode this season <laughs> unless I throw one dig at Southern Cross. <laughs> Southern Cross. But that was the best part of Southern Cross, too. Um, so, but the thing is, up till now, like I, I've understood this has almost been uh, a, a different version or play on the Vietnam War being shown right. throughout this anime. Absolutely. Just because you're in the jungles, you have green mecha that are hiding in trees, which I put aside a lot of my disbelief that like a 50-foot tall mecha can hide behind a tree. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Or I'm that disguised. you need some... <laughs> Or you need someone with like sonar to pick up their movements because you can't see them or Look out your pick them up on any giant robot. <laughs> yeah. Put all that aside. And I was Not like, all right, I'm in this. <laughs> <laughs> but when we got to the village of people who were willing to die just to take out the enemy, like regardless of everything else, that's when. It was it was no longer just sort of a, a brief overview, but it was like resonant right there that like this is what we're definitely showing you. We want you to fully understand that. Mm-hmm. And you've seen the implications of war and some of the impacts all the way through. But this episode brought all that home by like the end of it with all those people that have died, and you've got people sitting out by the water, the village is destroyed, our heroes have come to save the day, and they want to fight. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't matter really in war. I mean, yeah, and I, 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 that part I really dug. I mean, like the whole one of the things that 
I think this show did does reasonably well is it does not sugarcoat the bad sides of this, right? It's not like war is glorious and wonderful. It, it, it really kind of is like, no, this is a terrible thing that people should not be doing to each other. And mm-hmm. so stuff like episodes like this, I think are really on an emotional level work really well. This was definitely the fridge logic of, I watched it and went, oh, that's a really good episode. And then I sat down and started thinking about it and said, but wait a minute. Um, and I mean, even though I, I, I made the, the joke about it, I also think on some level, it, there's a bit of, listen, we're, we're in this situation. We can't just get rid of our commander. It's good enough. I guess let him keep him, him playing. I just, I guess what bugged me most is that, um, we set up Shiro in the first episode as being pretty tactical and able to, uh, salvage situations with, with, with minimal resources. And this episode all pointed towards being able to do that. And then it just didn't quite work. And so it's like, I'm conflicted because I like the emotional downer of it, but it felt like it was doing disservice to Shiro. Does that make sense? I I understand what you're saying. I have to respectfully disagree though. Ooh, respectfully. Well, we're, we're buddies and and (laughs) I I value your opinion. I don't necessarily agree with your opinion, but I'm not going to be an asshole. Well, not titially. Um, <laughs> not on air. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about pre-show. Um, <laughs> no, but when I when I reference the character growth and changing because of the war, when we started, we had a very idealistic hero who was like, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to kill all the Zeons. I'm going to be the action hero and save the day because that's what my destiny is. That's mm-hmm. why I chose that line. Because that's right. him saying, I'm going to find myself down there and it's going to be glorious and I can't die here. And by episode eight, it shows someone that has seen how both sides are someone operating, how the military structure that they really grew that they were grown up in, that they believed in, doesn't really work. They know that the terrorist attacks don't really work. They want to save the people, but the people themselves are traumatized by all the events going on around them and they want to fight back to their own thing. And they want to save someone else. That is a lot of pressure to be in and to be a commander and to see trying to constantly make the right decisions. And so it was nice to see that character slowly breaking down and still trying to hold on to some of their idealism and having that idealism still fail. So regardless of what their chain of command wanted them to do, they chose to try to do the right thing. It's when Captain America is written right, Captain America is not a tool of the government. Captain America is a symbol for the people. That's why in the Civil War, Cap is the one that sides for the people in freedom of speech and Tony Stark right. goes and becomes a government pawn. Yeah, right, right. No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, but I, I think that's, that's a point. It's helping me kind of reframe this because I had read Shiro as being like, I'm going to fight this spy charge and I'm going to, you know, I still saw the idealism there. But now that you're saying that, if, if, if you look at this episode as a series of punches to his idealism that had already been pretty battered by this point, mm-hmm. then his sudden desire to just throw tacks out the window and save this village is now, I, I now see as maybe desperation. And so he's not thinking straight because he just needs, he just needs one goddamn win and if he doesn't get it. That makes more sense to me now. That now and, I understand better what Shira is trying to accomplish because it's the, I just need something. And that's even not happening. And so it's like, well, and he's just kind of broken down at that point. That, that now makes more sense to me. Awesome. Um, but I also think that's somewhat reinforced by when the, I don't even know what he is, but the, the senior mechanic who has like papers he could give them, if they pay him a little bit of money, that would not get them in trouble. Shiro doesn't care about that. He cared mm-hmm. about getting there as soon as he could. And you have to have one of the team members who's thinking, of the larger picture now that what happens after this? Like we know you need a win, but what happens when we get the win? And so that's right. why you have someone else paying for it and covering. And that's why even in the fight, you constantly have Shiro trying to tell the enemy pilot, give up. You don't have to die. Surrender. Give up until he has to kill her. Right. Because okay. he doesn't want to kill Zeons anymore. I used to. He wants the war to end. And there's 
some people would say that is like a, a nice edge of difference, but it's not. That is a, a solid, distinctive difference between the two objectives. Like the first one, kill all the bad guys in the war. Now it's, I just want the war to end. Okay. And he's all trying right. to save lives. The, the, then again, I mean, I, I'm, I'm reframing, like as it's seen about the papers, I had read that slightly more idealistically in the sense of, um, you know, I, I'm the commander. I made a decision. I'm, I'll accept the consequences. Um, but now that I'm replaying the scene in my head, I could, I now see your point of Cheryl's like, I don't even care about that. It, it, it's the, I, what am I going to do? Make my standing with the military worse? They already accused me of being a spy. <laughs> um, now I'm seeing that. And so all the pieces that were jarring for me, I've, I've realigned the puzzle pieces and now they're snapping into place. So, so I, you know, I, I'm definitely seeing where you're coming from now. That, that's helping me a lot more. And that just helps why me with some of the things I had in future, actually. So that's... Awesome. I feel better than I thought. <laughs> that, that's why there's two of us here and from very yeah. different backgrounds. No, totally. Like, I really dig it. A lot of it for me comes from things I've seen and lived in the military and mm -hmm. being deployed and watching that happen to other people. It is it is not a pretty thing to see. That's that's not I mean, I was say it's really cool and that's not what I meant. Um, but I mean like that content that that life experience makes me realize how deep this show actually is. I, mean, I, I was I was pressed on the surface level, but now I'm seeing some more nuance and depth here that that I hadn't picked up the first time around. So it's really helping me deepen my appreciation of the show. And I will say, other than the last episode, like I think this is now one of my favorite shows that we've watched this whole season mm -hmm. because it touched on a lot of my own personal stuff I've gone through. It told a more gritty, realistic story while still having a lot of cool mecha fights. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are rough patches to it, but that's for any any work that's ever made. There's always something rough. Absolutely. Retrospect, fix later. But I think this is like definitely in my top three shows we've watched this season. Mm -hmm. And even though this is an OVA, I still feel like it's a TV show on some level. So it's like, you know, a lot of the rough edges also come down to you're making regular content on a treadmill. Sometimes you don't have time to make it absolutely as polished as you want to. And we saw that's why this is a good contrast to, like, say, Bubblegum Crisis, because when you do have infinite free time and budget, make, make an episode every three months, that's not necessarily better either. Um, with this, it's the, okay, we make the next thing, we make the next thing, we have to make the next thing, um, that if you have that regular momentum, you can keep a nice solid focus. Whereas we saw a problem crisis, like, uh, it's been three months. I don't know what we're doing. We're doing this thing now. Um, and it can become really different. So, so the rough edges, like, like I'm, I'm with you. I, they don't bother me at all. I think that's just the part of appreciating any art, any art you can look at and go, well, I would have done that differently. But yeah, I, I agree. This is. A genuinely, frankly, it's a moving show. And there's a lot I, of stuff glad. in here that I wanted to see in some of the previous shows we've watched. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, OAVs because I, I did a little bit of research. Not much because I we don't do research here on John Lewis. Regardless <laughs> of if Eddie decides to suddenly do like 20 pages on something one random day. We don't it's do not that. Even my, I'm not even my episode and you're giving me shit about my notes. What the hell? <laughs> You know me now well enough to know that I will always go for the callback. Like if I can make a joke in 10 years from now and we're still podcasting. That's it. Next I week, zero back. notes. I'm going to have zero notes. You have no idea where I'm coming from. It's going to be a blank slate. I look forward to that if it happens. <laughs> if it doesn't, uh, and this also means no side notes that aren't in the shared document. Like none Damn of that. <laughs> All right. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned the the OAV things because during some of the the side googling I did, this series came out I think over a three year period. Can you imagine getting like the first three episodes and then waiting six months before you get anything else? Oh, I thought it was I thought it was much faster than that. Okay, so I was wrong. No, I think this one was slower. Oh, okay. Well, explain the animation. The animation's gorgeous. But like some of the cliffhanger, like a cliffhanger ending. For instance, if we ended here and then you had to wait six months for the next <laughs> yeah. one, like yeah, what suck. the. So that was just really cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Do you have anything else about duty and ideas? I could talk about this one probably for another twenty minutes, but I figure I'm gonna I'm push forward. Let's 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 push forward and guys come guys come back to this if you need to. All right. All right. Episode ten. 
The Shuddering Mountain, Part 1. The Federation forces begin their assault on the Apsara, Apsaris. Mm-hmm. Sure. I love that. Look at that. No correction. Um, <laughs> so I will go back and say that my Alabama presents me from pronouncing certain words properly. I would feel shame, but I don't ever feel shame. So sorry. Deal with it. Um, <laughs> their assault on the super big cool weapon development right. base. The 08th MS team is assigned to escort a gun tank team into firing position. But Norris Guff Custom swiftly dispatches two of the Gundam tanks. Can the team save the last one? I love this episode. It had the best mecha fight I've ever seen. Yeah. It had some had some high emotional stakes to it. You mm-hmm. didn't know who you really wanted to win. Mm-hmm. Chef's kiss. Yeah, no. It's it's no notes, right? I mean, it's it's just it's when you want one of the things that that's interesting about doing this this set is that on some level, like you want giant robot fights, right? I mean, and it's okay if you build up to them, but then that payoff better be good. Compare this to the season seven Voltron episode we saw, Ugh. where it's like it's the same thing, right? It's an episode long fight, but there's just no payoff. It it, it it's. Basically, all the stuff you built up to, we're actually going to dismiss it to set up a whole new set of stakes. This is a natural, almost inevitable escalation of the previous episodes. And so, yeah, yeah you feel tension for characters involved because you're like, you know this is an inevitable conflict and it's not going to be good for anybody. And so you're even more engaged by it. And combined with just beautiful... Uh, uh, battle pacing it's it's yeah it's it's just a fantastic episode for me it's even more than that for the voltron fight the problem was in my opinion is that no matter what they did it didn't work the creatures got more and more powerful like tactics Mm -hmm. didn't matter any attack didn't matter but for this no one got more powerful they were using smart tactics they were using their surroundings when you have norris who knows their gun tanks there you see him shoot out that little cool chain thing as he shoots something and jumps down the stack mm-hmm. and as you're watching it i'm thinking all right that's going to slow him down and mm-hmm. then you have the gun person that doesn't necessarily see that or think about that because in the middle of a heated combat start shooting for where they know he should be based on the size of the mech and the speed at which it should fall like mm-hmm. that shows years of training and practice and skill at their job. Right. While Norris also has years of practice, training, and everything else, and potentially is a little bit better trained. So that's why he knows the gun what the gun tank will likely do and compensates for it. And it's a seeing him compensate. It's not his mecha is suddenly resistant to gun tank fire for one round. Right. And one of the things that I think why this show benefits from being compared to an existing show is that because it's trying to slide into an existing continuity slot, they can't really introduce power-ups. It's the, no, we've established what gun tanks can do and what Zaku's can do in these previous shows, so we can't build them up. And so rather than do the usual robot mecha thing of like, you get the more powerful version or you get burning justice or whatever reason makes you better... Um, you're right. They have to rely on tactics and uh, uh, the the lay of the land. Like I could, a lot of times in robot fights, the background is just kind of an interesting thing. Or occasionally, you interact with it because it's vaguely interesting. But generally speaking, it could be a flat plane, kind of like it was in Voltron. But here, <laughs> I felt like I was in a place. I was on an actual battlefield, and locations and things like that mattered. And that's frankly really hard to do in this genre. Well, it's also similar to the Big O because when the Big O, when they have fights, you see buildings crumble. Yeah. And people will generously say, dodge out of the way. Right. And it matters, like what they're doing. Here, mm-hmm. that fight matters. And you see every time Norris gets a victory, how it impacts all the crew and how they start making little mistakes because they're so stressed and tense now. Like yeah. that is great to see. And you yes, get to see. Shiro, who up till now has been like the best mecha pilot that's been able to compensate for everything, is stressed and worried and loses to Norris. And Norris knows who Shiro is and the relationship that he has. And like that was good emotion too. Oh, loved it. Yeah, no, really great. It was a good, 
balancing of the military stakes and the personal stakes, which is for a war mecha anime you really want. And then they Any shoot other? a whole fucking mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's part two. <laughs> Any other comments on this one? No, no, no. I just, I, I'm, I'm on part two where they shoot a hole in a fucking mountain. I mean, <laughs> it's the just... Shuttered Mountain, part two. They shoot a hole in the fucking mountain. Boom! <laughs> it, it, it was, we talked about they didn't escalate the stakes, but they, again, they, they've been building up this weapon is huge, and then they actually use it, and, and it's like, they start off the episode with that, and it's like, oh, okay, things are just got even worse. So, sorry, I may have mentioned the heat ray before because I, I love it so much that it just cuts a swath through everything. Even if it doesn't hit something, it still melts part of it just from the power of it. Like, right. oh, I love that. It's ridiculous, but it's but it's used well here. So, once again, I will ask, ask you. So, what did you think of the super weapon compared to the mecha and all the other Gundams that you've seen? I still, I mean, like, it's still like, eh, in the sense of... It's not a robot. It's not a, a cool vehicle. And it's like from the toyetic standpoint, it doesn't make sense. As a plot device, because you asked me before, as a mech, as a robot fan, where I think of it, eh, as a plot device, it is fantastic and used well here. It is Chekhov's particle cannon. <laughs> Sorry, that, I like that. Um, <laughs> if you show the particle cannon at the beginning of the series, you have to fire it at the end of the series. <laughs> For me, what I really loved about this episode the most is you get a full glimpse into that military commander and everything they've been doing up to now and how devious that person has been. And it shows you that there's a chain of command that people, even against their better judgment, frequently adhere to. Like his second was like, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that. Until you ordered them to assassinate him. Right. Like that. And you broke a peace treaty that's been set up that we could have saved people with. Mm -hmm. mm. Right. I mean, like again, I mean, as an, as a weapon, it, it's a heat ray, but what that firing, that moment represented is fantastic. And what did you think of our mustache trolling villain? Suddenly turning on Anna. I, I felt like that was going to happen. Um, I dug it because at some, like at some point someone has to leave their side. The only way this story makes sense is if someone ultimately has to leave their side. And, and given that we're Shiro's the protagonist, Anna's probably the one that's going to leave her side. It helps that uh, Zeon's kind of the bad guy even though they're much grayer in this version, but in most Gundam, Zeon's generally painted as the antagonist. So, like, it's narratively inevitable, but it was... I, I, I bought it here because we saw those scenes of Anna trying to make it work. It's like, I believe in my side. I genuinely do. I, I believe in the colonies. I believe that this is the right thing to do. I want to make this work and just keep eating stonewalled and stonewalled and stonewalled and stonewalled. And then finally him doing this and her going, okay, that's it. Ow. I mean, I think you need a, what was his name? Genius? I don't remember the guy's name. Yeah. Uh, Genius. Um, he, I mean, Genius. He's, he's clearly like like you said, mustache twirling, but you got to have at least one of those characters in there. They can't all be morally great. You need someone who's like, okay, no, you're the person I can turn on because then that Anna turning, he represents all of the rots in her side that she's been trying to fight against. He's kind of the, the face of that. And so she could, so she's turning against a person to visualize that internal change. And I think that worked well here. And again, you fire a heat ray and really what happens is you fire a heat ray and now Anna has left left Zeon. That that's basically what happens here. There's a lot of steps in the middle <laughs> jumping over. Um but I mean but that's good, right? It, it's the 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 military stakes mirror the personal stakes. He's trying to win the war 
and look at all the stuff that he lost making that decision. There's nothing else, the moral high ground. And also the literal high ground because he shot a mountain. Oh, I can make an Obi-Wan joke right now. Um, <laughs> but it was nice to see that Anna and Shiro are in the same place where they want the war to end. They care more about the people right. than really who who's going to win the war. If it ends, then they can go to some sort of peace and everything can be worked out with words. Like that was nice to see mm-hmm. until they both die horribly stopping the heat ray. Right. Unless you watch through all the credits. <laughs> Which for me, that was like the best part of the show when when it dies because a lot of people don't necessarily watch credits and it like it all crashes and they don't come out and it's like the war has ended. <laughs> credits. It's like what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the end and you see these two figures limping out in like a sort of shadowy thing with light behind them going through, saying that you're heavy. And when you look, you see that Shiro has lost a leg mm-hmm. and resting heavily on Anna, and that ends the show like that is a beautiful ending. Yeah, absolutely. And for folks that haven't watched the series, I don't know why you're listening to this here and watch the series. Um, this is a good place for you to stop. Know that you've seen a good thing and go about your way. At some point, we should talk about TV shows that go one episode too long. Because I can think of a few off the top of my head where it's like, you know what? Just don't watch that last episode or don't watch that last season or whatever. It's like, you know, let's just stop here. And, and you're right. This is just, I, we should talk about it. I do like lots of the episode, but it really just ruins the ending. All right. Do you want to tell what folks we're going to do next week or we're going to really do this? <laughs> All right. Uh, episode 12. Let's get it done. Last resort. With the end of the war. Michael has retired from the Federation forces and he sets off with Kiki to find out whether Shiro and Anna are alive or dead. In the jungle, they're captured by a group of mysterious children who give them shocking news. I'm working on how I do all the synopsis every time. I think I'm going to keep changing it up until I find the right. I, I, I noticed that the, the more frustrated you are with the episode, the more dramatic your reading gets. <laughs> Maybe it should be the other way around. Um, <laughs> no, you have to get through it. <laughs> All right. So. Mm. So this is Lord of the Flies. Basically. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so the shocking news is that, uh, um, the, the not shocking news that Shiro uh, and Ana are, are, they're alive. Um, but these kids were rescued by soldiers and sorry, they were rescued by Shiro and Anna, and they didn't have any names. They were war orphans, effectively. And do so, we know if they were just war orphans, or do we know or think they were possibly clones? I don't think they were clones. Uh, the impression I got was that, well, okay, that's fair. It is vague because they say their par- they never they didn't know who their parents were. And I had read that as our parents are dead. And we we're too young to remember that because I just feel like this is like a long time later. I saw it more as them trying to make super soldiers. Well, that's an even more depressing interpretation. Yep. Uh, but definitely the, I think the intent of the episode is so, so the big thing is that um, there's some confusion because uh, they, they, they think that, Anna's died, but in fact, it's a one of the children was given the name. And to answer this question, rather than actually asking the children, they decided to dig her grave up, which seems like a much more complicated way to answer that question. But then they find out that all the children are actually named after member, various people in the Zero Eighth team. Um, and they felt like they didn't have names before, and now they've earned those names, and they're worried they're going to take the names away. Uh, and, um, of course the leader of the kids is also named Shiro. Uh, and so he's told that he, you know, is a good commander and protecting his unit and blah, blah, blah. Can I tell um, you the yeah. writing trope that I hate more than anything else in the world? Well, which almost is more than anything else in the world. If your entire episode or thing hinges on someone asking you a question and you can answer it, like yeah, if that can solve your conflict. And you're just don't do it to have something, an episode to like have an extra 30 pages of a book. I despise it. There is, um, 
uh, digression, but there is an era of X-Men that I love slash hate because it is that trope taken to a ludicrous degree to the point where it becomes funny of um, the X-Men are believed to be dead and another group of X-Men in a different title are also believed to be dead and they both live in the same city and somehow complete miss each other for like 20 issues of comic in each respective title. This is like X-Factor and X-Men. And it's like, does nobody have a goddamn phone? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, 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 it's so ridiculous. The amount that the story goes to go, oh, oh maybe they'll meet. Oh, no, 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 they missed together. And like, you know, it's just, it's endless confusion where if, if people sat down and had a five minute conversation, all of this would be solved. And so I kind of love it because like, it's so ridiculous, but you're right. In general, it's, I don't like when an episode hinges on either people being stupid intentionally stupid in a way that violates their character or have no communication skills when the, the character is not previously established as having poor communication. If they had just said, hey, kids, what are your names? This episode would have been fine. Yeah. That said, I see what it's trying to do and I respect what it's trying to do even if they did it badly, which is that whole, the cycle of war will start again. Um, is that if you raise children to be soldiers, then the next generation of children after them are going to think that they also need to be soldiers and this cycle of violence will perpetuate. I think that's definitely what he's trying to go for. Um, I don't think it does it well. I, I think they crammed like a movie's worth of plot into 22 minutes. Like weirdly, if they had added more time to this, then they could have restructured that mystery in a way that made more sense and therefore actually given this heft. But because they had to cram it so tightly, it feels like it was just, yeah, why don't, why don't you just ask a question? And then at the end of it, it's, um, oh, and then they go over the hill and they see that Cheryl and Anna are fine and they're living together and have a house. Oh, no, before that, before that, when the kids are gone in the morning, maybe it was an illusion. Maybe oh, yeah, they right. were ghosts. Maybe they never existed. <laughs> like, mm. I feel like. So when I because so, um, when I was watching this, I want I binged most of these, but then like there was a, a for various reasons I it took up at least before I got to the last episode, and I remembered you talking about like, am I watching the right show? Because I had that throughout <laughs> this whole episode, I'm like, I, I stopped a couple times like going, is this O eighteen? Because I feel like I'm watching a different anime. Uh, because this is then would have been a decent episode in a completely different show, like. Even the wonky setup or whatnot, it's like if it was a supernatural show or, or something, or if this was the start of another season, I, I, there's a lot of ways I think this could have been salvaged pretty easily. But I felt like it just didn't need to be said, right? Like the whole cycle of violence is going to perpetuate. I don't, I think the show had already established that detail. I don't think it needed to reiterate it here at the end. I don't think it needed this footnote. We knew that they were alive, there was no confusion on that point. So that was. It's not new information for the audience. The fact that they now have a house in the woods doesn't really add much to the ending. Or it's kind of neat to see raising what, kids, <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of neat to see what happens to the rest of the team. But even then, I think we can kind of read it as read. Um, it it's the show was about people on two sides of a con. It's Roman and Juliet, like you said. It's two people, two kids on side of conflict finally finding each other and finding meaning in a horrible situation. This episode not only does nothing to add to that, but kind of actually detracts from that through line. So I'm with you. I, I, I didn't, when I was watching it, I enjoyed the episode, but the more I thought about it, the more I was just like, why do we watch this? And I know the answer is because we needed to see that sometimes even great shows can't stick to landing. Just how for the big O we watch the first episode of the second season to show you how it just drastically changed everything. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so, yeah, like you said, Shuttering Mountain is the actual ending of the show. I love the show other than episode 12 and then makes me go back and dislike most of the entire show. I personally wouldn't go that far. Um, I would just be like, okay, well, that episode didn't happen. And I can enjoy the rest of it. I, I don't think, I mean, I, I I think it undermines the core premise of the show, but I don't think it actively damages it. It's just more like, here's a weird epilogue 
And it's like, all right, well, I just didn't really need that. Let's move and like on. you said, I would have been better if they, even if they were given it more time, like 45 minutes. In 45 minutes, you will know that it's not an episode that goes with the show. It's like an after thing. Like it's sort of the end of the story. Or yeah, if it had it's, been it's, a full it's, it's, movie. It's, it's a it's, movie. A lot of animes will have like the, the movie capstone to the show, to the series. It could be like that. And I think this series actually had a movie too, but I think the movie happens earlier. Um, I'm about 20% on that though. I, I remember reading it. I didn't have time to review notes. All right. Um, Do you have any, any final thoughts on the greatest anime that was ever made? <laughs> it's a bit strong. It's my through I life, mean, I think for every anime that we finish. So I, I, one I of mean, I'll be right. Eventually. I'm, I'm just saying is this is, this is full metal alchemist erasure, but, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, so I I've never work. seen Full, Full Metal Alchemist. I, I I do recommend Brotherhood over the original, but Brotherhood's actually quite good. Um, but uh, I mean, in terms of the shows we've watched, uh, I was in an interesting place because the actual watching of the previous shows, I had a much more up and down experience, right? Like. Uh, Battletech was like, oh, I remember the first part of this and what the hell is happening in the second part of this. And then the third part was like, oh, the undiscovered gem. I'm enjoying this. It, this fun moments in this. Voltron we talked about was up and down. Um, when I got to this show, this was like the first solidly good piece of television I think we've watched in all of this. I enjoyed large chunks of the previous thing. Uh, previous stuff we watched, but this is like, oh no, this is actually good TV. And I think it's probably why I'm willing to forgive last episode, especially because unlike Bubblegum Crisis, at least it's one bad episode as opposed to four. (laughs) (laughs) So the percentages are drifting better. (laughs) And it's not an hour of a bad episode, how those were. (laughs) Right, right. This is 22 minutes of, okay, sure, whatever. Or 25 minutes, I think, but yeah. Um, so, but I mean, like you're right. There, there, there's character growth and change. Um, even as we've talked, I've gotten a better appreciation of it. It's trying some more subtle storytelling as opposed to the very bombastic on the news stuff that we've been watching previously. Like even the first Apple Crisis, I still love those first four episodes. But boy, how do they are not subtle. <laughs> they are. This is cool, and you will like the cool stuff. And there's music. Um, but you're Robotech forgetting. Had, no, you're no, forgetting please. Hurricane. Hurricane. <laughs> I, I, I'm not forgetting Hurricane. Hurricane is probably the best song that was ever written. Uh, but even the first part of Robotech, um, there was nuance there, but it was not subtle. This is genuinely working on a few different layers. And comparing this to Robotech is actually, I think, pretty strong. The first. Uh, of era of Robotech. There, there's a lot of commonality between these two and they both do their own bit well, but you could definitely see how this is, you know, 10 plus years removed. You know, the, 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 the art of these shows has evolved and changed and deepened. It doesn't invalidate what's amazing about that first chunk of Robotech, but you can see how this is a slightly more mature approach to some of the similar themes. It's like they studied what came before and they had mm-hmm. a good foundation to work with. Exactly. And like you mentioned, they were confined within a very specific period of time. There are only so many things they can do, which means you can't use your creativity to go outward, but you can use your creativity to go inward and enhance everything that you have. Right. It is a different skill set. And when done well, it is marvelous to see. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just, you know, so, let's get that last episode. <laughs> um any final thoughts on this um episode eight is great watch that over again <laughs> so do you want to tell the folks what we're going to do next time yes um we've been teasing it we've been talking around it we're going to talk about gundam wing um wait 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 wait. are you sure i watched vehicle voltron that's what we agreed to what do you mean gundam wing? <laughs> All right, go, I, I sorry, can go ahead. see why you'd be confused. <laughs> Actually, no, I can't. I have no idea why. You're that. <laughs> I don't even know how you watch that. I can't find it anywhere because I was actually curious, and I, I, I can't find it legally. All I will uh, see is form blazing sword. 
<laughs> we're not watching that. Um, no, we're watching uh, Gundam Wing. Um, for those of you who somehow missed this, this is actually America's first exposure to the Mobile Suit franchise. I think it's good to talk about this after 08 because 08 is a little more traditional Gundam. This is definitely a parallel universe. And um, it's interesting to see kind of the parent contrast too. So we're going to watch um, episode one, The Shooting Star She Saw. Episode two, The Gundam Death Scythe. Episode seven, Scenario for Bloodshed. Episode nine, Portrait of a Ruined Country. Episode 16, The Sorrowful Battle. And episode 24, The Gundam They Called Zero. Now, there's actually 49 episodes in this. And we've been usually going like through kind of the whole series. I'm kind of intentionally skipping that because there's a lot of stuff in the first half. And the second half becomes a pretty different show. And I don't feel like we can do justice by looking at just three episodes of each because a lot happens between there. So 24 is kind of just on the cusp of the start of the second half. So you can see where the second half's going because the zero part, uh, part is a huge change. Um, but... I'm just, we're going to skip a lot of the second half and also the movie. But if you dig what we're talking about next week, trust me, you want to watch the rest because it's amazingly bonkers. Awesome. Um, if people are looking for you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, you could find me online on Twitter at Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. You can find me my website at Pugsteady.com. Or you can find me on the Darker Hue Discord where I am frequently being ambushed by Chris's ideas for new specials that he wants to do. It's only six a day. Come on. <laughs> um, so if you're looking for me online, you can find me on the brand new Twitter account that I made for Eddie and I before we started the show. That's all about Strange New Worlds. We're going to tweet from it six times a day. <laughs> All right, maybe I mean, that's not true. Okay. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, can find me on Twitter at darker underscore hue, and you can find me in the dark hue Discord, throwing out ideas for specials that Eddie tries to nicely say. We could do that sometime in the future. <laughs> we have so much we have to talk about. All right, folks. We uh, appreciate you. Um, if you like the show, give us a tweet. If you don't like the show, you can tweet at someone else about it. Otherwise, catch you next time. Later. Later.